Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Don't maybe define an age or a year, but I. The first thing I thought when I heard the Matthew Perry news was that he's just too young. The stars of Friends are too young for us to be getting, uh, you know, obituaries about. Did you feel that way? That was very strange to hear that on Saturday and sad. Uh, Jack Riccardi on KTSA. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I wasn't even that big a Friends uh, fan. Uh, That was not really my go-to sitcom. I mean, I saw it sometimes. I wasn't like a faithful, regular watcher. Probably haven't seen it in years. Uh, but yeah, Matthew Perry, who was Chandler Bing on Friends, died apparently drowned in his hot tub on Saturday at his home in Los Angeles. And um, I'm not even ready to hear all the ways in which Friends is being described as a 90s sitcom and nostalgia TV and all that. I mean, this is like five minutes ago, right? But if you remember that era, if you were if you were young, per- I mean, I was a young guy in that in the 90s, and that was that show was. Uh, kind of a blueprint for people. It was, it was, they were like, uh, I don't want to say role models. They were like uh, cultural examples. And of all the people on that show, if you were young in the 90s and you were watching Friends, Chandler Bing was the friend you wanted to be. I mean, Joey was kind of a dummy. And Ross was all neurotic. Chandler had, you know, the clothes and the attitude and the sarcasm and the comebacks. And um, he said the things that you always think of saying five minutes later when it's too late to say them. You know, those snappy comebacks, right? And um, it was just a great, it was a great sort of moment where a, a, a really good character was written and a really funny, talented guy was found to inhabit uh, that character. But at the same time, the story goes that Matthew Perry had demons, that he had a lot of insecurities and he had a lot of loneliness and um, all the success side effects that we always hear about. And it's funny how we, we've heard we've heard the Matthew Perry story a million times. He, he, he got everything at once. Fame came all of a sudden. Fortune came all of a sudden. Um, he had all the stuff. And he was and he was miserable. And it didn't satisfy. And it's apparently a great shock to discover that when you get all the things you've dreamed of, you don't feel the way you dreamed you would feel. We've seen actors and singers and rock stars and athletes. And and they've told us this, and we've heard this over and over. And I I mean, we have heard this story so many times, we know it by heart. And people are still surprised. Well, I'm really surprised. And to his credit, 
Because I think you could tell he was struggling. I mean, I think even when he was still riding high and the show was still on, he was having health problems and drug problems, and he was struggling. And you could see, I mean, sometimes you can just, even in really funny people, there's that tears of a clown thing where you can just tell that they are sad people. They're giving joy, but they're not feeling it. And, and, and there's a lot of people in show business like that. You'd be surprised. So he turned his addictions and his substance abuse and stuff to a good purpose. He, he helped other people, and he, he founded a rehab center, and he talked about it. I thought it, was, thought it was very cool of him to tell stories that didn't flatter him. You know, he didn't just say, I'm having some issues or I'm going into rehab, very generic. He, he did interviews and he talked about what was really brutally, specifically, graphically happening to his body. And um, rather than say somebody ought to do something, he did something. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I am puzzled by why it is okay to be open about your body and not about your spirituality. We celebrate when famous or prominent people tell us about their alcoholism, about their drug addiction, about their marital problems, about their unhappy childhoods, or, or any, any, any of the things that befall them on earth. But when people talk about faith, and God, and finding him, and and believing that the hand of God is moving in their life, then we get all gidgy and uncomfortable, and they get scolded, and we're told they shouldn't talk that way, and people don't want to hear that. I find that very, very odd. Like, if it's helpful to hear about a person's, you know, journey through painkiller addiction, why couldn't it maybe also help someone to hear about the journey through the dark soul of the night? and finding faith, just as another person finds sobriety. Which, by the way, those two a lot of times, those two go together, right? So we'll talk about that today. Um, this came down uh, just today. Federal judge has ordered the Biden administration to stop cutting razor wire on fences along the Texas border. There are exceptions. The federal government can still cut the wire if they think it's a humanitarian emergency. But they're supposed to stop systematically cutting through the wire that uh, Operation Lone Star has put down. What do you think about that? So this is a win for Texas, basically. Texas gets to put down razor wire and try to do some border enforcement in places where uh, the Biden administration is not letting it happen. I said this the other day, we're never going to win this thing as long as the federal government and the states are fighting each other. If if the federal government <clears throat> works against any state, that state will not be very effective in border enforcement. It would be one thing if the federal government needed the help of the states. It would be one thing if the states were doubling down on whatever the federal government was trying to do or backing it up or what have you, or, you know, if it was more of the same. But I'm, just, I'm here to say no state, even a state as big as Texas, can be effective if the federal government keeps literally and figuratively cutting the, the fence. 
And I, I think this whole moment is crazy. I mean, like, I, I also, I was reading a story today about, uh, this is from, uh, let's see, where is this from? New York Post. New York City is <clears throat> directing illegal immigrants to a reticketing center where they are given a complimentary one-way plane ticket out of New York City in order to what they call their decompression strategy over their migrant crisis. Uh, the administration of Mayor Eric Adams has set up a reticketing center. Now, how are you reticketed? You weren't ticketed in the first place. Reticketing sounds like I'm at the airport and my flight got canceled. I got to get on another plane. I got to I got to find some way to get to Cleveland. No. Reticketing is a very Orwellian term for what they're doing. They're flying illegal immigrants out of New York City one at a time. So Greg Abbott is bussing them up there and Eric Adams is flying them out. And here's what I mean about this is a crazy moment. This is the greatest country in the world. We are the greatest country in the world. And the way we are responding to our southern border is we are not controlling it. We are not deciding who should come into our country. Even small, weak, third-rate countries do that. They, they make yes or no decisions. They decide who can come in and who can't. We're not even doing that. We're just moving them around. We are rearranging the deck chairs of illegal immigration. And it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a thing to see. It's depressing, and it's also kind of hilarious. It's like a Marx Brothers movie. The bus takes them up there. The planes take them out. Where will they go next? No one's dealing with the actual point of entry. The problem itself is the point of entry. Actually, that's not even the problem. The problem is deciding where we're going as a country. What kind of country are we going to be? Because we have an even bigger decision than what to do about the border. We actually have to make a decision about, like, demographics. Like, are we, are we prepared to honestly say, you know what, our economy works because we have illegal immigrants, and so we're going to let some in, and we're going to have some, and we're going to... We're going to meter the flow, but we're going to have some because we have a declining birth rate and, and we have jobs that Americans won't do, blah, blah, blah. So are we, are we going to have that honest discussion, which neither party wants to have, and most people in media won't have and most talk show hosts won't have? Are we going to have an honest discussion about like where we're going as a country? Because we actually need to do that even before we decide what to do about the border. You can close the border. You can open the border. You can have have uh, tighter control of the border but at some point you're putting off the, the really big question which is how many people and who do we want in the country coming into the country and why do we want them and what are we doing with them and, and and i mean there are people that think about that stuff there are people that study demographics and birth rates and and all that stuff and 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 have have there's there's actual math on this like, how many people do you need in order to support the retirement of the baby boom generation? How many people do you need in the workforce? Where are they coming from? Is the birth rate of the country supporting the number of people you need in the workforce? And in most countries around the world, the story today, in most places, 
the the native birth rate has fallen so far below their replacement rate that in most countries they're going to have to have newcomers. They're not going to make it any other way. They won't be able to grow the food. They won't be able to run the factories. But in our country, we've got some decisions to make, and we're not making them. But we're flying people around like, like as long as they're not in my city, I've done my job. That is just unbelievable to me. Uh, there was a um, a plane that came in to a place called Dagestan, which is a former uh, Soviet republic. The only thing I've ever really known about Dagestan was that the Boston Marathon bombers came from Dagestan. The Zarnayev brothers, yeah, that's where they came from. So this plane comes in from Tel Aviv to land at the international airport in Dagestan. And the people rioted. They flooded the airport and were rioting throughout the terminal. It looks like a very modern airport. It looks like San Antonio International Airport. It's not some backwater airport. But they're flooding it. They're running through it. Mobs are running through it. And then the people on the plane look down out of the windows, and there's a crowd out on the tarmac getting ready to storm the plane. The pilot even had to make an announcement about the dangers outside the plane as it was coming up to the gate. This is what the pilot's announcement sounded like. So normally at this point they'd be saying, like, thanks for flying, you know, ABC Airways, and uh, hope you enjoy your stay here, or the, the current temperature is. He's telling them, do not open any doors. Do not open any doors. Do not get off the plane. And um, people were being... Um, I mean, all kinds of things were happening. Uh, the, the, the rioters were making threats against the people on the plane. The security personnel at the airport vanished. Security collapsed at the airport. They gave up. So there was no effort to secure the people uh, on the plane. And apparently, if I'm understanding what I've read correctly, correct me if you've heard differently, but I think the plane wound up taking off again. Uh, because they couldn't safely deplane the people on board. And this says a lot about what's happening in our world right now, that a plane from Israel could not safely land and people couldn't get off. Um, and and I, I don't know about you, but I mean, th- when I look at the, the airport and I look at the behavior of people, when I look at the, the what's going on in, in Gaza, when I look at when I look at these riots and stuff in other cities, I, I, I'm thinking now is not the time to be facetious and politically capricious with who we let into this country. Like the problems other places are having is because of who they let in, or because they had no control over who came in. If ever there was a time to not be dumb. Democratic dumb, Republican dumb about the border and immigration, that would be now. That would be like right now. That would be like the last several years, too, but like right now. Because what's going to happen is going to be determined by who you let in. I mean, those of us that are already here are really not going to tell the story. The story is going to be 
who we let in. Remember how things changed in school? I don't remember when it was, but this this was going on when I was in school, and so it's been a long time. Remember when they stopped caring who started the fight? Remember when it became clear that if you got into a fight in school, both kids were in trouble? My my dad was shocked by that. I mean, he couldn't he could never get over that. That if you got into a fight in school, but you were sucker punched or the other kid started it or whatever, both kids were punished, both kids were in trouble, both sets of parents had to come into the school. And he, like I'm sure many of us, raged about that. What happened to right and wrong? They gave up on it. It doesn't matter whether one kid's a good kid and never makes trouble and the other kid's a punk or a bully. And that kind of moral surrender, I don't know if it started it, but it, it's, it symbolizes where we're at now. This is where we're at now. We've, we've, you look at the news, you look at that mob in that airport in Russia, we've surrendered to the savages. We've gone back to what I guess we've always been. You know, like maybe, maybe, maybe what we thought was the good old days was just a, a pause. But hating Jews, ripping down wanted, uh, I mean, uh, missing person posters, um, you know, wilding against people on an airplane because of where the airplane took off. This is just, uh, it's like really elemental stuff. And um, I've been mentioning this a lot on the show. I'm not, I'm not hyping the book. I don't get paid or anything. But I, I had read this book recently called The End of the World is Just the Beginning uh, by a writer named Peter Zihan. We'll eventually get him on the show. But Peter Zihan wrote this whole book about the premise of which is that the last, like, 75 years have been an, an anomaly, that the years from 1945 to basically the last few years so give or take 75, were peaceful and orderly and rich and prosperous and you had globalism. And you had all this stuff that the world has never seen before. Things moved faster. Things advanced faster. We've never seen such progress in such a short amount of time. But that was an anomaly. That was not normal, he says. And we're about to go back to normal. And most people won't know how to handle it or how to feel about it because most of us are not old enough to remember before the 75 years. But it's going to be all kinds of things, small and large. It'll be little things like your, your diet will be less varied because you won't be able to go to the store and buy food from all around the world. Uh, your iPhone won't get updated as often. Technology will move at a slower pace. Supply chains will get shorter. Country, people have wanted this, and now you're going to get it. Countries will have to start making their own stuff, but we'll find out when we do that that we're not all good at making everything. The United States probably will be the best in the world at it, but even the United States won't be able to make everything with the same efficiency that when you were sourcing it from all around the world. But one of the things he talks about is that the world order is collapsing. He says you're going to see piracy again. And we are. You're, you're going to see um, more local wars. It's not going to be World War III, but it's going to be lots and lots of wars over, like, 
minerals and oil and, um, you know, countries trying to control uh, the supply of various natural resources or, or their food, you know, supply chain or whatever it is. And so I, I think when we look at what's happening, we want to think we just got to get this election right or we got to, um, you know, get our heads right. But, but really the world is just changing and devolving away from, I guess I would call it civilization. And when I, and, and he, by the way, he's a very non-political guy. You can't tell when you read the book how he feels about Trump or Republicans or Democrats or any of that. But it, it, when I hear people say like, oh, the Israelis really need to have a ceasefire with Hamas, that's the 75-year thinking. Like, we, we can't have a war. This is so unseemly. But I think what the Israelis are confronting, what they've been confronting since October 7th, is a kind of savagery that is going to be the new normal. What the people on that airplane saw when they pulled up their little window shades and looked out the window, and you expect to just see the baggage carts, and you know you're thinking about what you're going to do when you get in the airport. I got to go to the bathroom. I got to get a sandwich. I got to get a ride to my hotel. These people look out the window and they realize they can't even get off the plane, and they're not getting off the plane. They'd get killed if they get off the plane. When's the last time that's been anybody's experience, right? So. It's not, what do we do about it? It's watch the world change, right? It's changing. And I guess being ready for it or being uh, having the right frame of mind about it is a good start. On the JR poll, do you favor a ceasefire? Uh, the uh, It looks to me like the Israelis are not going to be considering that, and I don't think they should. Um, but this isn't really just about that conflict. Um, when you think about where the world is going, and if you believe, as I do, that we are seeing kind of the end of a, like the post-World War II peace or order is kind of unraveling, maybe it had to, maybe, maybe stuff like that can't last because it's not our natural state of being, or maybe it's unraveling because of poor management and bad decisions, I don't know, maybe both, but it's unraveling, the world's changing, the world is devolving, back to things that we haven't seen in a long time. And if that's true, and I, I don't think there's any denying it, then when you face an enemy, you probably are going to have to defeat that enemy because the only way you can have a ceasefire and a negotiated peace is if there's sort of rules that everybody follows and agrees to and they keep their word, right? And you you know in this in this conflict you know you can't have that that's not going to happen but i would actually argue that that's probably going away in general like probably the way countries relate to each other in the future is going to be more about who has the bigger stick and if not the use of violence than the the potential for it you know i, I think that's where we're going because that's how the world always worked before world war 2 and the only reason it wasn't that way after World War II was nuclear weapons and some decisions that were made about internationalizing and globalizing. And it had a good run. But that's not the way the whole history of the world has been. The whole history of the world has been about strong survive. 210-599-5555. I, 
I, I'm puzzled by and kind of amused by this talk about how the Israelis are colonialists, right? That's what the people that bash Israel say. They're they're colonialists. They're they don't belong there. They shouldn't be there, which is historically not true. But also, um, the people rioting, the people uh, doing these pro Hamas riots, the people angrily tearing down missing person posters, are actually the ones that have come into the countries they're in. They're the they're the if you will, they're the colonialists. They're the ones that have that have taken over demographically. So, like, you go to London or Paris, from what people tell me, it's not what it was 20 years ago. Those places have changed. They've been changed by the people that have immigrated there, and they have been changed by people that are not attempting to assimilate, but people that are imposing their way through sheer numbers. And speaking of birth rates... Remember that in all these places, including our country, the people coming in have much higher birth rates than the people already there. So who's who's going to control the future? It might be the people that are having the most babies. And it, it, it matters how many babies you have and it matters how you raise them. Because if you raise them like, oh, we're going to be multicultural and everything is all relative, that's one thing. You can have a bunch of kids, but if you raise them like that, it doesn't make very much of a difference. Or if you raise them like, we're right and everybody else is wrong, that has a different outcome. 210-599-5555. Um, and then there's uh, there's been a lot over this weekend, obviously, about the mass shooting in Maine. They had a big vigil um, yesterday. And we told you on Friday they had revealed the names, they had released the names of the 18 killed, and those people are being honored and remembered. And um, they had a multi-faith service. They're reopening that community. The schools are reopened again today in Lewiston and things like that. Um, We are responding to that in a really predictable way. We're not we're not really very interested. I, I have to be honest and just say this, and I'm not supposed to say this out loud, I guess, but people are really not that interested in discussing the mental health angle. You know, we say we are, and there's lip service paid to it, but it's very complicated. There's not like a Republican and a Democratic version of mental health. There's not like a left and a right on mental health. If you've ever known anyone or yourself experienced uh, these issues, it makes no distinction politically, right? So we've gone back to the familiar battleground of gun laws. We got to have that argument because we're comfortable having it. We know where to stand, we know what team we're on, we recognize our team colors, like oh I'm with those people, I'm with these people. And and I mean, I I I watched this on the Sunday shows. It's just you could plug in the debate they're having over Lewiston into any other high-profile shooting that we've had. So let me play this for you. This is um, Kirsten Welker, who's the new host of Meet the Press. She has on Governor Ron DeSantis. i got to be honest, I, 
I'm a little surprised at how sort of uncomfortable and ignorant Kirsten Welker sounds. I know she's a lib. I thought she was a little sharper than this. And um, DeSantis gets into it with her about guns and background checks and would it have made a difference and how do you stop something like this. So let me just play this uh, for you and we'll talk about it um, on the other side. I think it's cut number three, Don. Officials in Maine are saying a red flag law could have made a difference. It would have empowered authorities to raise that red light to gun sellers all across the state and say, this is someone who should not be able to own a gun, that that final line of defense never kicked in because it didn't exist, Governor. Well, no, when you do background checks, if somebody has a criminal conviction, for example, that goes into the system. When they run a background check, that is what they're checking. Maine doesn't have strong background checks. No. Are you arguing for that? It's no. Every... Every federal, every federal, this is federal firearm licenses. When you have to do, you everyone has to go through where they where they scrub this. So the question is, is what are you putting into the system? If somebody has a mental health involuntary commitment, then that can simply be put into the existing system. You don't need additional uh, things. And here's the problem I have with with some of the proposals that have been done, and particularly in some of the more blue states, is that will be weaponized uh, against people that the government doesn't like. I mean, you have a situation where someone can just make an anonymous call into uh, a police station, let's say, say so, say something bad about someone, but that and then they come in could and have take, take firearms. Could it not have, Governor? Could an anonymous call have helped in this moment to block this shooter from getting a gun and going into these establishments and shooting up 18 of his fellow citizens? And he could have had that involuntary commitment just put into the normal system. That is something that, that would have been able to, to pop on the on a background check. I mean, there's more to it. But isn't it interesting? We, we pretend we're having a different discussion. Well, we're, now we're discussing red flags and mental health. But really, we're just discussing gun control. It's just the same, it's the same thing with a little different wrapper on it. It's like a product where they change the packaging but what's in the product is still the same. Same formula, new package. And I wanna, I wanna see what you thought about that exchange. Um, let's get into that a little bit. 210-599-5555. I have some definite thoughts about red flag laws, so-called. Yeah, it sounded to me like Kirsten Welker didn't know that there's background checks. Um, that just didn't seem to be in her wheelhouse. Uh, and I, I just, I listened to the two of them, Kirsten Welker from Meet the Press on NBC, and. Governor Ron DeSantis, and in in one sense, we're talking about what happened in Maine, but really we're just having the same debate over and over. Um, and background checks, to me, are deeply flawed, and red flag laws even more so. And the common denominator is the human element, that uh, these things are only as effective as the people implementing them and inputting and... Uh, you know, cross-indexing, and as we saw at Sutherland Springs and other places, when it's done poorly, then it doesn't, and it performs poorly. Uh, and I think it's extended as a, as a, uh, a catch-all or a band-aid by people that really want gun control, but they're they're thinking, well, we'll we'll placate them with some red flag laws for now, and then when those don't work, which we know they won't, then we move in for the real thing, the real the real laws that we wanted all along. Uh, Rain is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Rain, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Jack. Um, 
the, the red flag laws don't work. Um, they violate what the first, the second, the fifth, the sixth, seventh, and eighth amendments. And, and, and I need to mention that Maine had yellow flag laws, which are very similar to red flag laws that are being proposed. Um, it's only as good as the person putting it in, as you said, and it's just chiseling away at the Second Amendment. And I'm, I'm really getting sick and tired of having to explain to people over and over and over again that the Second Amendment stands in between the government and all of our other basic rights. And mm-hmm. I just don't know how to further explain it to people. Well, I mean, that sounded like you explained it very well, actually. Um, I mean, you keep explaining it, I think, is the, is the only advice I would give. Because I, I, I don't think it's that we're not saying it right. But it does take sometimes, like as with anything in life, Rain. I'm sure you can agree to this. You can hear something a thousand times, but you have to have a you have to have an experience that brings it home, that makes you realize, oh, I really do need to do that, or I really do need to be serious about that. And I just I don't think most people can see themselves as threatened uh, by tyranny. You know, I, I, when you say that to a lot of people, they they just think. What do you mean? I mean, I, I get a check from the government. I they they build stuff. What are you What are you talking about? Right? Yeah. Well, you would think that when they saw all those Palestinian parachutes mm-hmm. in the air, you know, mm-hmm. and and the Israel mm-hmm. was was actually using their firearms to protect themselves, and and to be aware that we have an open border essentially, and that we caught what over seven hundred known terrorists or terrorist affiliates across our southern border, that we need to be more aware of what's going on. Mm. And while we have domestic issues, such as mental health um, issues going on and, and, and domestic terrorists, there are millions upon millions of firearms that are in law-abiding citizens. And I'm tired of being told as a law-abiding mm. citizen that I have to be continually, continuously restricted from my Second Amendment rights and because of somebody less than 1% that is, is failing not to uh, follow the laws. Well, all I can say is I like everything you've said. I hope you keep saying it. Don't get discouraged because people oh, have I to will. hear it. You know, people have to, and you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I would just add, Rain was, Rain was spot on, but I'll add one little thing to what Rain said. There is a real um, attentiveness or focus on not reporting when a good guy with a gun, and I, by guy, I'm assuming guy or gal, when a good guy with a gun saves lives, they're, they're so careful not to tell those stories. They're so careful to, to smother those stories with a pillow, not a my pillow either, that you get the idea that in this country, the life of a gun is waiting for some crazy to go shoot up a bowling alley or a school. That's what guns do. That's that's all they do. And you, you'd you never know that in the life of most guns, the, I mean, 99.99999% of them, they're never used for a crime. They're never used to wrongfully take a life. They're never used to deprive somebody of anything. But on occasion, they are used to save lives and protect people when there is no other way. And, I, you know, so part of, I think, Rain's frustration is, when she's talking to people, they don't know or they're not thinking or they don't hear those other kinds of stories. I realize a person, a good guy with a gun isn't going to get the same amount of news coverage as this this idiot in, in Maine, but I also know that if people never hear the other side of it, 
it's hard to even imagine that there's another side. And there is. Um, this popped up, speaking of my news feed, this popped up over the weekend, too. This is uh, Joe Biden as a candidate in 2020. He's doing a BET event, and he's uh, talking about how Donald Trump is going to get us into a war. If he gets reelected, he's going to get us into a war with Iran. Cut number one. The world has changed because what Trump has done. And the American people, including independents and some Republicans, know how bad he is, know how much he's misrepresented, know how he's getting close to getting us in a war. I said, as the walls close in on this man, I'm worried he's going to get us to war in Iran. Unfortunately, I may have been right. The fact of the matter is there's a lot at stake in this election. Hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a lot at stake in this election. Oh, and democracy is on the line, too. You might want to write those two down. Write them on post-it notes and, <laughs> and put them prominently throughout your home. Oh, God. Um, well, yeah, we are, we are pretty much either in a war with Iran or about to be. And, and I, they were saying on Fox, I, I didn't know this, there's been 24 hits or near misses on U.S. forces in the Middle East in the last two weeks, by so-called Iranian proxies. So Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad. And, and that's the thing. You, you basically now, if you're, if you're a country or anybody that wants to attack the United States, you're not going to attack it with your uniformed military. You know, Torah, Torah, Torah. It's not. It, it's going to be cutouts and proxies and third parties and mercenaries and and pirates and privateers. And isn't that obvious? I mean, I'm not a smart guy and I'm not an expert on this, but that's pretty obvious, right? You read a little, you figure this stuff out. Speaking of President Biden, they had Kamala Harris on 60 Minutes, and this was a disaster. I mean, this this was. I I know 60 Minutes has become basically like the the House newsletter for the Democratic National Committee, but this was, I think, an attempt. I, I'm, I'm guessing they told her, try not to giggle so much, and we're going to try to make you look more serious and kind of clean up your image and get you guys in shape for next year. So this is what she had to say to Bill Whitaker about Biden uh, running next year, and she's not worried about that. She's not worried about having to step in for him. Cut number five. Listen to this. We were talking to some Democratic donors, Mm -hmm. and they have told us that should something befall President Biden, and he is not able to run, Mm -hmm. that there would be a free-for-all for who would run as president. You are in the spot that that would be unnatural for you to step up, but we're hearing from donors that they would not naturally fall into line. Why is that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to engage in that hypothetical because Joe Biden is very much alive and running for re-election. So but you do are. know. I mean, that is a concern and, and a legitimate concern, I would say. I hear from a lot of different people a lot of different things. But let me just tell you, I'm focused on the job. I truly am. Our democracy is on the line, Bill. Oh, there it is. And I frankly, in my head do not have time for parlor games when we have a president who is running for re-election parlor games what's this 1946 
When's the last time you played a parlor game? Um, I thought I made dated references. How bad is it when you have to say the president's alive? Like, you have to announce that. Hey, I just checked on him. Seems to be alive. Um, it was kind of an awkward question he asked her, right? I mean, he basically, in so many words, with a lot of, like, polite, I guess you'd say, extra verbiage, he basically said, nobody wants you if something happens to him. Am I summarizing that, Don? Am I, is that pretty, pretty much what the question was, if we boiled it down? Like, why is pretty it that close. nobody wants you if something happens to him? And her response is, he's alive, and I'm not playing parlor games. And I, I don't know. Um, there really is no, no one is really, in the Democratic Party at least, no one's really acknowledging the 800-pound elephant in the room, which is that we know that we didn't elect him with 81 million votes. We know that he's not making these decisions, most of them. These policies are not his, which is part of why he has so much trouble talking about them. It, and, and also, um, this is something I don't think you would expect a conservative to say, but I'm going to say it. You're going to miss Joe Biden when he's gone. And here's what I mean. I, and I'm no fan. I, there isn't one thing about this presidency I like or approve of. But you do realize that all his tough talk about Israel and moving the second aircraft carrier into the Mediterranean, you do realize that's not the, the position of the Democratic Party anymore. Like, we wouldn't bat an eyelash if President Clinton did that, or even President Obama. But this Democratic Party is so anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, so in the thrall, in the thrall of the, the far left, that Biden is really the only one, he's the only major Democrat standing up for Israel. I shouldn't say that. I guess Schumer probably is. But there's not many. There's not many. And it's not exactly a consensus point of view. And I don't think, I don't think Kamala, Harris, Kamala Harris, to me, is, is a squad member emeritus. You know, like, she doesn't hang with the squad because she's the vice president. They're in the House. But... For all intents and purposes, if you want to know where to place her on your game board, she you know, if you're playing a parlor game, uh, she's she's like, you know, a senior member of the squad or an honorary member of the squad. I don't think um, we're being very honest about any of this, yeah, but I think people are starting to see it. In fact, I think the polls that show uh, disapproval of Biden is also kind of people moving on from him. The public is getting ready for somebody else. That doesn't necessarily mean a Republican. That's the other thing you gotta realize. Like I, I know a lot of a lot of people probably figure anytime his numbers go down, that makes it uh, more likely that Trump will get elected. But I'm not so sure that's true. I don't think we've seen all the variations and things that are gonna happen between now and this election. We're we're now what, fifty three weeks from the election, basically, right? Do you honestly think it's going to stay in the shape it's in right now? Do you think like the player we've got the players set, we know who they are, we know we know we 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 don't know who Trump's running mate will be, but I mean we, Trump will be the Republican, Biden will be the Democrat, Harris will be his running mate, 
We basically know what their positions are on the major issues. It's all locked in. It's just all we got to do now is vote. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I think there's surprises and changes and upheavals. and I'm not as far as the people who go, I don't even think we're going to have an election. I'm not, say- I'm not saying that. I know there are people who believe that. I hear that a lot. I get emails like that. And I, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. I just don't think we, it's, I don't think it's taken the shape it's going to take yet. The matchup or the, uh, the issues of it. Uh, this, uh, guy is an NYU, uh, professor and he's on the Mar show, the Bill Mar show. And, um, he's talking about how during COVID, his name is, I think his name is Scott Galloway. I forget what he's a teacher of. Um, but he's talking about how during COVID he was on the board of his uh, local school that where his kids went, <clears throat> and um, he was a lockdown advocate. In fact, he thought they should have locked down harder, and he, he really wanted lockdowns. And now he realizes they did more harm than good. I think he thinks he is apologizing. But when you hear this, you got to tell me what you think. You, maybe I'm being too hard on the guy, but I, I think he's full of it. I don't think he's apologizing at all. I think this is the worst apology. If this is an apology, this is like the worst apology I've ever heard. Uh, cut number six. Listen to this. Well, I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy, and in retrospect, I was wrong. The, the, the damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risks. But here's the bottom line. Myself... Are great people to CDC. I'd like to think the governor. Now here we, we go. We were all operating with imperfect information, and we were doing our best. Okay? Doing our best. So, but let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's hold each other accountable. But let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness in the yeah. shit show that was COVID. Yeah. Um. Okay. No. That's a hard no for me. <laughs> As Randy would say, that's a hard no for me, dog. For starters, um, I get that we need reckoning. You've heard me say it. We have let people like Scott Galloway totally skate on being prominently, loudly, obnoxiously wrong and advocating for, or in his case, I think he more than advocated, he was on a board, he cast votes, so he voted for things. He helped implement things that by his own admission hurt kids. That's very serious. And we've had no reckoning, we've had no Nuremberg trials, and I'm not asking for executions, but I mean, we've had no Nuremberg war crime trials about COVID, where we've, where we've trotted out the people that, that took immoral, indefensible positions and said, hey, we got to make sure this never happens again. we got to make examples of you. Again, I'm not advocating that they be deprived of life or liberty, but we got to make examples of you so that we don't do this again. And people like you or even you don't do this again. We never did that. We're not going to do it, apparently. This is a guy who said that People that disagreed with him had their head up their butt, not his word. Uh, this, this is now a guy who says we were only doing 
our best. Yeah, we ruined some kids' lives, but we want some grace and forgiveness. You didn't act with grace and forgiveness. You didn't show it when you were handing down orders. You didn't show grace to people you disagreed with. You didn't show grace to people that were qualified and said you were wrong. There were people who knew lockdowns were not the right thing to do. I'm just a guy that thought they were the wrong thing to do. There were people that knew they were the wrong thing to do. So how do you extend grace to people who've shown you who they really are and what they are willing to do if they get scared? They're going to get scared again. The Scott Galloways of the world are going to face something that scares them again. And we know what they'll do. They won't react on the basis of science. They won't show respect for expertise. They won't respect established pandemic protocols and research. How can you say you did your best when you ignored the best thinking on the subject? And it's not like you didn't, it's not like we made these decisions and, and, and no one was saying anything. You know, we had thousands and thousands of reputable, qualified scientists signing letters. The Great Barrington Declaration, the one I remember, but there were others like it. Imploring policymakers like Scott here, don't do it. So no, no grace from me. And um, it's... It's a lie to say you were operating with imperfect information. I think it would be more accurate to say you were paying attention to what you wanted to hear. And look, that's a common failing. We all have times when we do that. What is that called? Confirmation bias, I think. Is that the right term? When you, when you cherry-pick facts or news stories or things that support what you've already decided or how you already feel... But if you're making decisions that impact a lot of other people, like you're on a board or you're setting policy or you're a governor or you're a mayor, you're not allowed to have that. That's not, that's not okay. And remember that we were still closing down schools in 2021 when it was already obvious that the virus wasn't doing with children what they had warned it would do, when it was confirming what the Great Barrington Declaration and these other scientists have been trying to say, Dr. Marty McCary, who we had on this show many times, people like that. So if they were doing their best, they would have listened to dissenting voices, not tried to silence them, not, in fact, insulted them and told them that they had their heads up their butts. What do you think? 210-599-5555. Do you want to give this guy a pass? He says he'd like some forgiveness and some grace. Do you have some for him? What do you think? 210-599-5555. Don, let's play it again. Well, we can I play was on the board of my kid's school again. during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy, and in retrospect, I was wrong. The, the, the damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. But here's the bottom line. See, if he stopped right there, hold on. If he had stopped right there, that would be great. That's all he needed to say. That is that is humble. But then he keeps going. Myself, our, our great people, the CDC, I'd like to think the governor, 
We were all operating with imperfect information, and we were doing our best. Okay? Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's, well, let's, but let's learn from it. Let's learn from let's it. Learn from let's it. learn from it. Let's hold each other accountable. Yeah. But let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness in the, yeah. the shit show that was played. Yeah. And throws the he throws the s bomb in there just to show his street cred. What what has he learned from it? Like, I would like to, I, I know Bill Maher is not a journalist or a hardcore interviewer, but like, what, what would you do differently? What, what specifically have you learned? And um, why should we trust that you would not err again? And by the way, I, I love when people blame COVID. <laughs> I mean, COVID's a virus. COVID didn't, COVID didn't close any schools. COVID didn't shut down businesses. COVID didn't wreck economies and lives and livelihoods and people's mental health. COVID didn't do that. People's reactions, chosen chosen reactions did that. Okay. COVID is just a, a thing in nature. Human beings are the ones that effed up our kids' education and, I would say, our kids. That That's an important distinction because... Because at the end, he's letting himself off the hook. Well, it was an S show. You know, it was a bleep show. We couldn't. No. Everybody was living through the same set of experiences. Everybody had the same risks for catching it and experience going through it. Most of us had it at one time. But not everybody was saying what you were saying. Not everybody was insisting, demanding, coercing what you were. Am Am I being too hard on him? I don't think I am. Richard's on the radio. Richard, good evening. Yeah, hello, Jack. I was listening to your commentary about that gentleman that retracted his statement about 2021 with the COVID. Now, it seems to me that he did uh, park his humility for a while, but he's got it in his back pocket again and would give uh, uh, he would bow and scrape to the those in authority, even though they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And that was exactly what happened to the whole country. Nobody knew what they were talking about, and so we went ahead with this COVID thing, and we had a lot of people that were sick and even even dying. And uh, but uh, the people in the forty and the government, they knew best. Sickening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first part of what he said about uh, I was wrong. It's refreshing to hear people say they're wrong, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really count for anything if you go on to say I acted on the best information. He's basically saying no one could have done any better. We couldn't have done any better. So then what does that tell me? Like, you're just going to do it again. Thank you, Richard. Also, when we had COVID, it was revealing, you know? It was revealing of people's true nature or character. We learned a lot about people in public office. We learned a lot about people in public health. Um, we learned even even away from that, even like in the entertainment world and stuff, we learned who the authoritarians are. We learned who the people who maybe secretly, quietly harbored a, a, a yen for lording it over others or giving orders. I mean, look at all these whack jobs that were running up to people in stores. Where's your mask? You know, all that. And, and it was not a pleasant experience. And we all went through it. I think the least we can do is try to remember who was who. You know, I, I would I would like keep 
I would keep track. I would keep score. And he is not, he does not sound to me. Now, I know I'm not a very nice guy. And I've got to work on my forgiveness. I'm not, I'm not good on the forgiveness thing. So if you think I'm being too hard on him, you can tell me. And I'll, be, I'll try to take the constructive criticism. But I just, I hear a guy that would do it again. Um, in a heartbeat. And I, I, you know, um, I go by what he said, and I go by what he did, and he says, let's hold each other accountable, but he's not holding himself accountable. If he says, I did the best I could with the best information, and we know that's not true, that's not accountability. I guess that's sort of what I guess that's sort of what passes as accountability now. Like we have all these <clears throat> whenever the government screws something up and they issue a report or they do a commission or a task force, it's mostly CYA, right? And I guess that's what everybody now thinks constitutes taking responsibility. Like reciting that something was done wrong is taking responsibility. But I think real responsibility is like I'm I'm going to be different next time. You won't see me do that again. I'm consciously a different person. I'm going to approach that differently. And I won't show you that side again. Greg is on KTSA 210-599-5555. Hello, Greg. Hello there. These people have no conscience and no soul. Fauci on down should be held accountable. They lied from the beginning. They knew about it, and and as the as it continued, they continued to get worse. And this guy, if you listen to him, said he wanted to do us worse. He has no conscience. He should. I I, I just I don't have words. <laughs> you had some good words, Greg. You did a good job. Thank you. Thank you for the call. I think you had some words there. Uh, 210-599-5555, would you extend grace and forgiveness, his words, to an NYU professor who says on the Bill Maher uh, show Friday night, I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID. I wanted even harsher lockdown policies. In retrospect, I was wrong. The damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. If he'd stopped there, okay. And he goes on to say, well, we were doing our best. We had the best information. We listened to the best people. No, no, no. No, you didn't. I mean, they didn't even do, you know, we, we heard about this later, but th- th- apparently there were all these, like, books and binders and war plans on the shelf, right, for, uh, for pandemics. Those got thrown away. We didn't even do what our own dysfunctional federal government had always said it would do when and if something like this happened. I'm not sure that would have been a great plan, but all the time, all the money, all the prep that they did, they threw all that away. And we know people cashed in. We know there's a lot of people that made a lot of money off this. A lot of people. Not just Fauci. Don't get hung up on just Fauci. It's not just him. Although he's a good place to start, but it's not just him. A lot of people made money off this. A lot of people made political bones off this and got their ju- their rocks off, giving out orders and barking out orders. There's an authoritarian streak in a lot of people in politics. 
And the only thing that curbs it or causes them to hide it is that it's usually, it's, it's considered very un-American. But during COVID, it suddenly became kind of cool, right, and kind of chic to be holding nightly briefings and barking out orders and issuing, uh, you know, commands. I, I have to think some of those people that were deeming businesses, um, what was the term they used? Um, I'm blanking on the word, but basically like these are the businesses that can stay open, essential, that was it. These are the essential businesses. These are the non-essential businesses. That's some pretty powerful stuff. That's like Putin level, Xi level stuff. You're just the governor or the mayor somewhere. All of a sudden you're deeming what's essential. These people got a, they had a they had a wild ride. And I'm not prepared to just hear, oh, whoops, sorry, could have done better. No. I gotta hear way more than that. And you do too. Steve is on the radio on KTSA. Steve, welcome. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. The, and the, the the greatest sin and crime of it all is they did it all of that, what you said. They did it all for political gain. These people grant no one forgiveness. They grant nope. no one uh, 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 grace. And then, and then they asked for it from us, and they did yeah. not do their very best. Because if they had done yeah. their very best, their very best would have entailed listening to all of the experts. Exactly How right. You? If, if you didn't do what they said, you lost your job, you lost your business, they threatened to take your children away. I mean, give me a break. I mean, and they showed us who they are, so it's on us now, Steve, if we forget. If we if we put them back in office and we leave them in for the next pandemic, that's on us. I wasn't fooled the first time. I won't be fooled when it happens again. Anyone who's lived yeah. through COVID how you could ever believe anything the government or the enemy ever tells you again beyond me. Yeah, yeah. Good to hear from you, Steve. Thank you. Uh, 210-599-5555. By the way, I read uh, the other day, I forget where, but they said that uh, China, this was uh, London Daily Mail. Chinese scientists have discovered never-before-seen viruses on a tropical island, eight of them. These are novel viruses, including one in the same family as COVID, and they are now experimenting with those viruses sure it'll be sure they're doing their best <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be just fine uh a win for texas today in court uh a federal judge has said that the Biden administration needs to stop cutting the razor wire uh put along the uh southern border uh, as part of operation lone star uh, judge saying that uh dhs can cut through only if they deem it to be a humanitarian emergency, like somebody needing medical uh, treatment. So just with that exception, and I'm not sure, of course, how that'll be interpreted, and we're a long way from this being resolved, but I I wonder what you think about just the idea. I mean, it's not new that state and federal governments differ and go to court against each other. That's happened all through our history. But on something as essential and basic and seemingly one-sided as border enforcement, I mean, when did it become debatable 
that you block your border, that you control who comes in, that you, you absolutely prevent unauthorized, unknown entry. When did that become a Republican-Democratic thing, a red-blue thing, a federal-state thing? And I don't know really, I mean, can, can the states ultimately prevail? If the federal government is, is hell-bent on an open border, can the states prevail against that? I'm not saying they shouldn't try, and I know you want them to, but I, and I do too, but, <clears throat> but if, if, that's the, if that's the struggle, you'll always be a day late and a dollar short. And there was also a story today about how the mayor of New York City has created um, in East Village something called a reticketing center, which sounds like something you would go to if your flight got canceled, right? Oh, I got to get another plane on Delta to get to to L.A. No, no, these are these are illegal immigrants in New York City. They go to the reticketing center. It's really a ticketing center. It's a free ticket center. They get a free one-way airplane ticket to the destination of their choice. Where do I sign up? I gotta, I, I gotta get me some free airplane tickets. That would really help right now with the price of everything else going up. Where can I get my free airplane ticket? That's one way. Now think about this. Governor Abbott buses them to New York, and Mayor Adams flies them somewhere else. Is that not an insane? Calculation or picture right there? How is, that a, how is that any kind of policy? How is that the greatest country in the world dealing with its immigration policies? We're just moving them around. And when they get to wherever the reticketing center flies them, if they don't like it or they're not welcome or there isn't a shelter or there isn't a bed or whatever they want, it, can they get another trip to somewhere else? Are we just going to keep moving them around? Do you feel like giving either party credit right now? I don't. I mean, I know who's worse, but I don't feel like giving either party a big gold star for having a good immigration policy. I'm not even sure we're having an honest discussion about it, to to, to tell you the truth. I mean, an honest discussion would be to acknowledge bigger issues even than the border. You'd look at demographics, you'd look at the workforce, you'd look at how the future is going to work. You would take into account our birth rate. You would probably determine that there are there is a type of worker or there are types of workers you want in the country. You would be very specific about who and what they are and why you want them and for how long, and, and you would have a policy that favored their entry, maybe even recruited them. But you wouldn't romanticize everybody. You wouldn't speak about all immigrants the same way, which right now both parties do. You wouldn't do that. That wouldn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. That's like saying if somebody's at my front door, one party would say if somebody's at your front door right now, you absolutely want them. Let them in. Don't even look at who it is. And the other party would say, whatever you do, don't let them in. But but what if it's my mom? No, you can't take a chance. So it's not an honest discussion. We're just not having an honest discussion about it. And if we were really honest about immigration, it would be based on what we need as a country and what we want, what furthers our our, uh, 
social and economic interests and not this sort of, you know, hypothetical immigrant cartoonized discussion that we have now and have been having for a long time. I mean, I think that's how we got into the situation. I think the world, when they, when they noticed that we were not going to take this seriously, they got very serious about coming here. And there's no mystery as to why that would be. You know, I got to say, I, I know this is not the most important aspect of what's going on over there, but it, I am sort of fascinated by what's happening within the Democratic Party because Biden to me is a Trojan horse. You know, you've heard me say this. Uh, he's not really the leader of the Democratic Party. He's just the vessel for the Democratic Party, and it worked. I mean, they're in power, they're in the White House, but the policies coming out of the White House so clearly are not his or in no way resemble the, the positions he's taken over the years that we, we we know, we can tell, you can tell by watching him. He's not He's not the man in charge. He's just the man they send out to say stuff. And 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 never is that more clear than with what's going on with Israel, because the Democratic Party at the moment is tearing itself apart over Israel. I mean, you've got people that are pro-Israel, and, and, and you've got Jewish Democrats, but then you've got all these people, not just a few and not just a fringe, who are rabidly anti-Israel, and some of them are rabidly anti-Semitic, which we'll get to in a minute. If ever there was a moment to see that while the media keep telling you the Republicans are divided and they couldn't come up with a speaker and then they got this guy, Mike Johnson, who nobody knows, the real the party that's really about to come apart at the rivets is the Democrats. And people much smarter than me have predicted it for a long time because they've said, look, this is a this party has a base of disparate groups, people that don't see eye to eye and don't share any interests and the democrats have bribed and cajoled this bunch of of diverse people to try to hang together and it might have been easy when they had charismatic leaders or when the economy was good but in tough times and without apparent leadership and there's no one on the bench there's no one coming up behind biden who has you know clinton level reagan level political skills that you you you, you can see that they're the ones that are going to have a hard time hanging together. And the fault lines are really visible with Israel. Now, about the anti-Semitism. I took a lot of heat a couple of weeks ago. I said it. I probably didn't say it in a very thought-out way. And I deserve to have my knuckles wrapped a little bit, although in fairness, I think people didn't really hear what I said. But I, I made some remarks to the effect that I was surprised by the, the, the depth and the breadth of anti-Semitism. I didn't say I didn't think there was any, or I never, I never heard of it before. I just said that there seems to be a lot more of it, and it's being expressed a lot more openly than I would have expected. And, and a number of people, many of them Jewish, not all, said, really, you, you, you sound like an idiot, <laughs> and um, you sound naive. How, how could you not know? What I mean by it is I think we've had a kind of, um, if you'll pardon the pun, ceasefire. I know the history of the Jewish people. I get that they have been preyed upon and uh, scapegoated throughout history. I mean, you go back to the Bible. 
that they there have they have been um, nomadic and often unwelcome in the places they settled or tried to settle. Um, that they um, the experience of the Holocaust and World War II was just the latest in a series of historical tragedies like that. It was the worst one. It was the most systematic and brutal one, but it wasn't the only one. And it led to, it was so extreme and so, uh, it so required a, a resolution that it led to the international mandating of a state of Israel. But anyway, as I've thought about it, and I accept the criticism, and I didn't say it very well, I didn't come across very clearly, I think we're realizing that the last 75 years, Israel has been around since 1947-48, and the last 75 years, or basically since World War II, have been a kind of um, pause in the action. They've been kind of an exception to the rule of, of a lot of things, of many, many things. Like, for most of human history, before World War II, supply chains were short. People stayed in one place. You ate what you grew. You used what you made. You um, and made what you used. I'm generalizing, of course, but everything from people's diets to their entertainment to their clothing reflected where in the world they were. Because importing things and moving things great distances added greatly to the cost of those things. So you could do it, but it took a long time by ship, and it was treacherous, and that all reflected in the price. We've lived, all of us, you and I, listening to this show right now, have lived in a time when you could go to the supermarket and routinely get food from all around the world and we expect that we assume that'll be true if we feel like indian food tonight that all the stuff we need is at the heb but that's not that's not been the the way of the world up until these last 75 years and it may not be the way of the world any longer what's happening now this unraveling this this devolving and, and the return to blaming the Jews and hating the Jews openly. It's, it's, it's acceptable to do it in, out in the open. People aren't even afraid of being called a Nazi or a, uh, a bigot. They're wearing it on their sleeve, literally. This is a return to the way history was for all but the last 75 years. And that's probably what I should have said in the first place. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think um, the word globalization, which has a lot of negative connotations, and usually when people have used it in the recent past, they've meant like our government not putting our own people first and being too dictated by or under the influence of international organizations and international approval, and we don't like that. And But there's another kind of globalization that was good where countries traded so freely and safely that you could have all these choices and all these products and all this competition. 
And that's why your iPhone is made in a lot of different places before it gets to you or your car or a Boeing airplane or any number of things. But if we go back to the way things used to be, life gets a little coarser, a little harder. And if we go back to the way things used to be, people don't have to pretend. If I don't like your tribe, I can just say it. If I hate them, I can just hate them. If I want to live apart from them or keep them out of my community or out of my school, I can just do that. If I want to say I don't think they should have rights, I can say that. I can even do it. Because that's the way it was. Savagery is sort of the norm, right? You look at the history of the world, the world's been a cruel place. It hasn't been a place of long periods of peace and prosperity. It's been a place of only the strong survive, and whoever has the biggest stick makes the rules. And We forgot about this because we've been able to, and it's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing, in fact, that our children grew up and are growing up, and you grew up and I grew up not having to think about these things. That's a wonderful thing. But it wasn't a forever thing. And we're looking at this now, and all of a sudden things that seemed far away are right here, like pro-Palestinian demonstrations. All your life, you've seen them over there. Now you see them in your own town. And there's a lot of things like that now. And we've gone from enjoying that peace and that break in the march of history to kind of lying to ourselves a little bit, like, It was okay for a while, but now we need to start being honest about things that are changing and moral equivalencies and stuff like that. And like, we may be going back to a time when peace is won through war. You know, that's how peace used to be won. You couldn't declare it, negotiate it, have an international organization, have a meeting, set rules okay, we all agree not to do this or do that. That's not the norm. The norm is you totally crush a threat. You totally annihilate an enemy. And then you have peace for a while. I think that's what Israel's doing. I think that's what they're going to do. I think a lot of people are having trouble recognizing that because we haven't seen that in a long time. We, we really haven't seen a country set its sights and declare its aims the way they are since, well, since we did it, right? Since we said we were going to go for the unconditional surrender of Japan and Germany. And it's interesting that it wasn't that long ago, but it was just outside the lived experiences of most people. Most people can read about stuff like that, but we're not alive when it happened. Anyway, some thoughts on that. It sneaks up on me every year. I mean, we've been doing it for 25 years, but we're in our Rappin' with Jack uh, campaign for Family Service Association. So even though I know it seems way early to to think about Christmas, in order for us to provide for these families, as we've done every year, and we've got, I was told today, we've got over 600 families that are hoping for help from Family Service Association, 
Um, in order to do this, we've got to get an early start. Th- they've got to have the presence by early December, so they've got to have donations. They've got to have whatever we're going to give them and provide right away. And to those that have already given, and many have, thank you. Thank you for already donating. appreciate you. Um, if you're on the fence about it, if you're undecided about it because times, you know, money's tight and inflation and all that, I'll, I'll just say something real quick. Um, it is harder than ever to think about how we're going to pay for Christmas for our own family. And so it's harder than ever to think about donating. But please understand that when you give to Wrapping with Jack, when you give to Family Service Association at KTSA.com, all of the money goes into providing things these families need, like pajamas and blankets and kitchenware, uh, basics for the kids like Nerf footballs and dolls, very basic stuff. But then you're also giving hope. You're giving somebody the feeling that they have not been forgotten. You know, a lot in a lot of these families, the kids have already been told Santa Claus may not be coming this year. They they're told that. So the the opportunity to surprise somebody and give a gift that will be more appreciated than any gift we give each other that we give our family or friends, that's what I'm offering you. And I'm I'm just putting it in front of you. If it feels right, please do it. And it's easy to do at KTSA.com. If not, I understand. But when you go to KTSA.com and you click on the Wrapping with Jack button, you'll see there are different ways to give. You can give money right there off a credit or debit card. You can buy online, and the stuff will ship right to Family Service Association. It's like an Amazon wish list kind of thing. Or you can see some of the items that we've listed. These are the traditional needs these families have, long list of items. If you like shopping, if you're out there hitting the stores all the time anyway, You can pick up the items on the list and donate them at our drop-off sponsors like Copenhagen Imports, Institute for Functional Health, River City Oral Surgery, and our title sponsor, Quarter Moon, Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. All their trucks and vans, wherever you see them around the city, are drop-off locations. So if you see like a couple of Quarter Moon guys in your neighborhood, you can actually donate the items right there with them. And all the details are at ktsa.com. It's something interesting. Um, this guy was a um, CEO of Ford, former CEO of Ford. His name is Jim Fields. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and he was saying that um, I, I Ford last week announced that they were putting off several billion dollars in EV investments. Uh, putting off building a new battery plant. Um, they are losing money. They, they have a division called Model E, which is their electric vehicle division. Their electric vehicle division lost $1.3 billion for the quarter. That means per vehicle they lost $36,000 per vehicle. The Sky Jim Fields, uh, Mark Fields rather, excuse me, used to run Ford said something very interesting. He said, Ford better keep its internal combustion business alive and well. He said something we know, which is that the internal combustion side of the auto business is funding the EV side. But then he said something that I'm hearing more and more, which is that they better, all these car companies, he's talking about Ford because he ran it, but this is true of all of them. They better have like plan B. 
and if you read between the lines, they do. Like Stellantis, which is the umbrella outfit that owns Chrysler and Fiat and a bunch of others, they're still announcing the development of, meaning these aren't even available yet, the development of gasoline-powered engines to be introduced in the coming years. Now, why would you do that? Unless you thought there was a very real possibility that there would be demand for them and, and not a wholesale conversion to EV. But Ford made its announcement. General Motors uh, made an announcement uh, about EV demand. Did a Bloomberg interview, said that um, they're slowing the launch of several planned uh, EV vehicles. One of the top executives at Mercedes-Benz said their third quarter earnings were down and they're projecting lower uh, or slower sales, rather, for EVs at Mercedes-Benz. It, it's pretty much across the board. I could go on, but um, these are these are some of the top executives. These are not dissidents. These are CEOs and CFOs saying uh, the EV inventory is growing, the sales are slowing, <clears throat> and they've encountered a lot of Resistance. By the way, one, one interesting article I read said that what's happened with electric vehicles is they've, they've kind of burned through the first generation of buyers. The first generation of buyers were highly motivated. These were people that really want an EV. They're very excited about having one. They see no downside to it. They don't have range anxiety. They're proud of their EV. You may know someone like this. They're kind of evangelical about it. And the car companies hit those people first. Obviously, those were the first adopters, right? And maybe presumed that everybody would be like them. That eventually everybody would feel that way. But they're not. And so as we get into this time or this transformation or this transferal to EVs, now we're hitting the consumer that has mixed feelings or is... Um, worried about range or intimidated by the price. And behind him or her is the consumer that's like, nope, I'm not sold. I don't want it. I don't like it. No thanks. And so I think these car companies, I'm hoping I'm right about this. They need to have a plan B. They do have a plan B. But then the other thing that has to happen is at some point they have to assert control over their own destiny and take it back from the politicians. Because the politicians are calling the shots. This whole thing is being driven by politics and politicians. It's not being driven by people that know the auto industry or know consumers. I mean, really smart people that have spent their whole lives figuring out what people want and how to package it profitably. No. This is being driven by blowhard senators and uh, people with access to grind and people that, frankly, have money to make in the technologies. They're not car people, but they might be mining people or they might be um, people in other industries that see an opportunity if there's mass EV adoption. And so at some point, maybe the people in the actual car business, the actual car people, and I'm hoping there still are car people in the actual car business, that it's not just accountants and McKinsey people, but 
But if there's actual car guys and gals in there, uh, this is going to be the moment pretty soon when they've got to step up and go, okay, we, we're, we've gone too far, too fast. The consumer is not, is not joining us in this, and we've got to go with plan B. And plan B is that there's probably both. Like I could, I could totally see both. I just can't see a wholesale conversion all to electric vehicles. And it isn't because I don't want it. It, it has nothing to do with what I want. All the signs are there. That except for that first outer crust of people that, again, were, were eager and needed no selling, pretty much everyone behind them is not there. Uh, coming up, we'll have the results on the JR poll and see how you voted on the question about uh, are you a ceasefire kind of person. A um, little political news. I don't think we talked about this yet. Um, former Vice President Mike Pence. I did not have Mike Pence on my um, didn't have him on my bingo card for being the first candidate to withdraw. Who did you think would withdraw first? But he. Uh, well, the official term is he paused his campaign, but I, I don't know if I've ever seen a campaign unpause once it pauses. So pausing is usually forever. Uh, but he made the announcement at a uh, an, an event over the weekend at which he and other Republican candidates spoke. So Mike Pence is out. Uh, that guy we've played before, Captain Deplorable, the guy that does the Trump impersonation, here is his Trump reacting to Pence uh, pulling out of the race, cut number two. So long, farewell, Alveda Zane, goodbye. Mike Pence is dropping out. He's dropping out. He never had a chance. He never had a chance like Crooked Joe on a flight of stairs. Never had a chance like AOC on the SATs. Never had a shot like Eric Swalwell on a crowded elevator. You know what I'm talking about. We call him his flatulence. You know what I'm talking about. Mike Pence is dropping out, and now he and the fly that landed on his head. You know, flies are drawn to sugar, honey, iced tea. He and the fly can spend some time together in the landfill of history. Mike Pence is dropping out, and so I say, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Goodbye, good riddance, and let's make America great again, believe me. How do you like that impression of Trump? I, I, that guy is really good. I will say, Don Cooper, I don't know, he goes a little too fast for for, for a Trump impression, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, just a little Trump bit. Trump would have paused a lot more on those things. But you know what catches my attention on this person amongst amongst others that have impersonated Trump? He does one thing that I that others do not do, and that's the big sniff between yes. sentences. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Is it a sniff or it's like you draw in air through your something, teeth? Too. Something, yeah, something like, like you that. do this <laughs> kind of thing. It's like he's pulling air in, like all four engine ducts. You know, like right. it's going through the right. nostrils, the mouth. He's just yeah. If you're he's, right, if he yeah. slowed it down just a bit, I think he'd be perfect. 
but it is. Because Trump has that pause. <laughs> not only does he pause, like, to catch his breath, mm-hmm. but he also yes. pauses yes. to let a line land. Yes. It's like, it's like his... every sentence is a punchline. Yes. Yeah. Show business training. <laughs> uh, speaking of show business, um, I thought this was interesting. Saturday Night Live did a uh, bit where they were making fun of Biden's age, which is news in itself. Um, they had him hanging up Halloween decorations in the Oval Office. It was actually pretty funny. And then Mike Johnson comes in. And I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. Kind of early to, for Saturday Night Live to already be depicting Mike Johnson. Do, do people that watch SNL, do enough of them even know who he is yet? I mean, you know. I mean, you're a very close student of news. But, I mean, does the average person even know yet? So anyway, they had a guy come in and be Mike Johnson, and then this black guy comes in and says that he's Mike Johnson's black son. And now I'm really intrigued because, and I'll explain what this is a reference to in a minute, but this is really a reach for SNL because I'm quite sure most, if you went out and did a man on the street, most people would not recognize a, a photo of Mike Johnson would not recognize the name Mike Johnson, are not close enough followers of the news to know that he's just, just been chosen Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, even if it had been like Steve Scalise or somebody, I don't think most people would have would have immediately known who that was. So anyway, here they are depicting Mike Johnson, and then they're depicting his black son. And they made a joke about uh, the movie The Blind Side. So the the, the reference is to the fact, and this has been something that's been hanging around Mike Johnson for years. He and his wife took in um, a young man named Michael, coincidentally, uh, when he was 14 years old. And um, consequently, not that much younger than the congressman himself. I think he's only like 12 or 13 years younger than Mike Johnson. But they took a guy in, uh, this was several years ago, like I think 10 years ago or something. Very young. Um, he was coming from a, a difficult background. Um, and uh, they have referred to him in interviews as their adopted son. But they get dinged because, A, they didn't really adopt him legally. Does this sound familiar? And he doesn't always appear in family photos. So when there's like, you know how politicians put out the family photo in their campaign literature, website, so forth, he's not in those pictures. And, in fact, he's a grown man now. He lives out on the West Coast. He's got his own family. Apparently, according to Mike Johnson, his adopted son, Michael, um, is in touch with him. They stay in touch. They love each other. He believes that he saved the the boy from maybe a gang or or worse. But he doesn't want to be involved in politics. He doesn't want to be featured. And I can believe that. I can. Um, I'm not sure. I, I've tried to put myself in Mike Johnson's position. I don't have an adopted kid, but I mean, like, if you were in the situation that that 
Speaker Johnson is in, if you force this young man into the mix and you say, look, I, I've got to have you in these pictures, I want you in these pictures, I, I need people to see that I've adopted a black son, that doesn't feel right. If you leave him out, people are going to say you're ashamed of him or you're not acknowledging him, and that doesn't feel right. If you say, well, it's personal, it's none of your business, I this is just something I did because it seemed like the right thing to do, what's the secret, what are you hiding, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that there's any, the way we do things now, the way politics and media work now, the culture, and then the racial part of it, you know, I, I don't know there's any way to win with this. So that's the story, in case you were wondering what Saturday Night Live was doing. Now, why would Saturday Night Live make such an issue of, I mean, this is the first time they've ever depicted Johnson. They're referencing kind of a obscure political figure. Weird to say, but it's true at the moment. Not yet a household name. Um, why would you immediately bring that in? It's, it feels like they're trying to knock him down. It feels like they're trying to diminish him and and belittle him and so now for a, a low information voter, no offense, but a low information voter that, you know, was up watching SNL the other night, all he knows about this guy is he claims to have a black son, but not really, and it looks very suspicious and not legit. Um, and I, I just I found it interesting and I wanted to just kind of point that out. I don't I don't know where I don't know where that story is going, but that's what they're doing with it right now. On the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery, do you favor a ceasefire with Israel and Hamas? 87% said no. 13% said yes. And we'll have a new JR poll question tomorrow. We're live at 4. We always have a new question. It runs all through the show and you can vote at ktsa.com. It's always there or when you call into the show tomorrow. So we were talking about Matthew Perry, uh, the actor who passed away on Saturday, played Chandler Bing on the NBC sitcom Friends. Uh, He died at 54, apparently drowned in the hot tub of his home in Los Angeles, uh, and had, of course, a history of um, drug and uh, other addictions. I think, if I remember correctly... He um, had some kind of accident, like a, I want to say like a motorcycle accident or something, while he was on Friends. I mean, he talked in his book about how he, he started drinking as a young teenager and messed around with alcohol, but he had some kind of mishap while Friends was like a hot happening show and was off for like a week, and that was when he first was prescribed Vicodin and became addicted to it. And he, he he looked back and he realized that as each thing happened to him, and he had a number of health issues, he had pancreatitis uh, and other things, they kept um, prescribing painkillers, and he's being a, an addictive person. These all became addictions. And you can see that stuff sometimes much more clearly in the rearview mirror than you can see it through the windshield. Uh, but I, I will I will say whatever else you think, he was open about his addiction. He tried to help other people, both in being candid, but also he put his own money and his own 
effort into a rehab center. I think I think he even turned one of his houses into a rehab center uh, at one point out in California. Uh, so tonight we wanted to leave you with uh, a great moment from the TV show Friends. This is an episode where Chandler, played by Matthew Perry, needs a tailor. And Joey, played by Matt LeBlanc, recommends his tailor. Take a listen. Hey, anybody know a good tailor? You need some clothes altered? No, no, I'm just looking for a man to draw on me with chalk. <laughs> Why don't you go see Frankie? My family's been going to him forever. He did my first suit when I was 15. No, wait, 16. No, excuse me, 15. All right, when was 1990? Okay, you have to stop the Q-tip when there's resistance. <laughs> So now he's going to this uh, tailor. How long do you want the cuffs? Well, at least as long as I have the pants. <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. Okay. Now we'll do your inseam. <clears throat> the guy basically feels him up. He, you don't see it on camera, but he gropes him. <laughs> Great facial reaction. Now he comes back to the apartment. Yo, Paisan. Can I talk to you for a sec? Your tailor is a very bad man. Frankie, what are you talking about? Hey, what's going on? Joey's tailor? advantage of me <laughs> what no way i've been going to the guy for 12 years hey, oh come on he said he was gonna do my inseam then he ran his hand up my leg and then there was definite what <laughs> cupping <laughs> that's how they do pants first they go up one side they move it over then they go up the other side, they move it back, and then they do the rear. <laughs> what? Ross, will you tell him? Isn't that how a tailor measures pants? Yes, yes, it is. In prison? <laughs> What's the matter with you? What? That's not... Oh, my God. No, I swear to God, Dad, that's not how they measure pants. Well, we'll remember him, um, that show, and I think in particular uh, his acting on it, I think, was really the... The, the crowning part of it. I mean, he was, he was of all the friends, he was the character. If you were a guy in the 90s, uh, you would have wanted to be. We're back here live tomorrow. We get started at 4. And don't forget, you can listen anytime as an on-demand podcast at KTSA.com.